Hello and welcome to the Tech Human Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ebsworth, one of the founders of the techhuman.org website. In this podcast, I will be talking with guests about the impact of different aspects of technology on human life. Today, in our second episode, we're looking at the role digital technology has played in our lives through the pandemic and how our society is changing as a result. My friend and techhuman.org co-founder, Professor John Wyatt, has joined me to discuss what we've observed, to explore the impact of what's changed, and consider how we should respond to the growing role of technology in our daily lives. So hello, John. We're here to record our second podcast episode, looking at the impact of the pandemic on various aspects of technology adoption in human life. Welcome. Hi, Jonathan. It's, it's good to be here. And uh, it's a fascinating topic because this pandemic happened to come at, at, at a very interesting inflection point, didn't it, in, in, in the development of technology. I mean, we've often talked about what would have happened if the pandemic had occurred 30 years previously. You know, there was virtually no online activity at all. But this particular pandemic happened to strike just at a at a particular point as, as tech, technology and, and the online world had become extraordinarily dominant. Yes, and, and I think what I've seen is as the, the lockdown struck, we suddenly saw, I think, a marked acceleration and adoption of many of these technologies, some that people had hardly been using, like video conferencing, tools like Zoom and Teams have, have come to the fore, but also even greater reliance on social media and other digital platforms. Yes, and, and as somebody who's worked in the health service for 30 years, it's fascinating to see what happened in the NHS because it's well known that the NHS has been a kind of black hole of old-fashioned technology. I think it was one of the still... Um, principal purchase of fax machines. Um, the NHS was was using a very antiquated technology. And whenever online um, methods of, of medical consultation had been proposed, there were a whole bunch of people who said, oh, no, no, it's quite inappropriate and we're always going to be face-to-face meeting. Well, as soon as the pandemic comes, you know, the NHS just pivots on a sixpence. And uh, all of a sudden, everybody has adopted uh, online telemedicine, um, and, and by and large, with great success. It, it is amazing because historically, the NHS has been seen as re- resistant to change, and yet those changes happened almost overnight. Do you think they're here to stay? Well, it's it's a fascinating question. I think undoubtedly they are. I, th- I think uh, I mean there was always a contrast, wasn't there? That, you, that when it came to online services like Amazon and online shopping and so on, all of those things worked astonishingly well. And yet, when it came to interacting with the NHS, it was you know you could have an appointment with your GP in two weeks' time, provided you come and sit in the waiting room. And you know the, these kind of very antiquated practices. So I think all that's been swept away. And I, I think both. Um, medics, professionals, and, uh, and and patients have discovered the advantages of being able to speak directly to um, to a health professional. So I'm, I'm sure it is here to stay, but it has raised all kinds of interesting uh, challenges f- for medics. Um, particularly interestingly, when interacting with young people uh, over over online platforms. What what sorts of things have have emerged from from those those interactions well i think what what doctors particularly gps have discovered is is that um 
when you're interacting over a, a over an online platform, many young people regard it as very similar to um, to having a WhatsApp conversation with a friend, and it and therefore they just all the normal conventions about the way that one would respond in going to see a professional. Uh, if you think when you normally go to see a doctor in the, in, in the surgery, you sit in the waiting room, you know, you wait around, you get ushered into the presence, you sit down on the chair, there's the, the doctor, you know, in, in, their, in their place. It's, it's all a very formal and it's all got this social structure. When you're just having a WhatsApp conversation, uh, all those rules have gone and and doctors find that often people are uh, rude uh, they are um they, 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 there's no sense of you know they say well you may say that but i think this and i've read that and you know i'm busy now can i speak to you another time and um and and, and some of the doctors have found it excessively frustrating that the, the, the normal structure of the doctor patient relationship has been eroded so it's going to take quite a time i think to rework out new conventions for doctor patient relationships in in this online age yeah i, th I think you're right and you know sit sitting working in in sort of technology space i have seen it was happening before the the pandemic but the pandemic has kind of cemented this that that working remotely is normal and has become acceptable in in so many jobs i don't see people returning to offices at the same level that there were before the pandemic is that your impression yeah I'm, I'm sure you're right i mean particularly in central london you know because going into central london at the moment is, is like going into a ghost town and with all these massive office blocks and and the whole sort of infrastructure surrounding the the commuting lifestyle the the sandwich shops and all that and it, it is quite hard to imagine that all that is, go, is going to go back to to the way it was um having said that of course this new on, uh, online working environment is raising all kinds of other issues um, and, and, and one of the issues is I think that it it contributes to the digital divide doesn't it so what your home is like and whether it's a suitable working environment suddenly makes a massive difference you know if, if you're living in a nice flat or a house which is quiet and you've got good access to internet and you've got your own working space then it's fine but if if you're in some really uh, socially deprived setting uh, all crowded into one room without adequate infrastructure and so on the idea that you just work at home is 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 desperately difficult if not completely unfeasible Yes, it's a real problem, and, and that extends right down into the education system as well. If if remote learning carries on there for any length of time, uh, we've seen problems already, but that's going to extend. Do you imagine that, that perhaps we're going to see um, emergence of more of these kind of drop-in work centres? I, I guess they were becoming fashionable for startups with WeWork and, and organisations like that. But do you think that that actually may happen more and more in local communities so that people can have a place to work that isn't home, but they're not having to commute into the big cities anymore? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I suspect that you're right. I, I think there is going to be a, a considerable need to, to for new infrastructure, new new approaches. And uh, I mean, what was happening in the past was that people were sitting in Starbucks, weren't they? And uh, other yes. coffee shops and uh, making a, a coffee or a tea last for three hours and, um, and, and, and using the free Wi-Fi and so on. And I suspect that, you know, 
there's probably going to need to be a greater um, uh, way of making this this more formal. Yeah. So, in it, 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 what came to mind as we were talking then was something like um, the Ark co-working space that KXC Church in London had already set up before the pandemic. Um, where they, they they had created a a working space that people could come to. And maybe that's an opportunity for churches and community groups actually to, to establish these things so that people who don't have work-suitable homes can come and perhaps enjoy a coffee, but in a proper work setting rather than Starbucks. Yes, I mean, fascinating, isn't it? Because... Um you know, as, as as one person put it, we live in a society which is very relationally deprived. There's a relational deficit amongst so many people's yes. lives, so many single households, so many broken relationships. And um, therefore, the idea that, that uh, Christian communities might provide a physical place for community, a safe place where people could gather both to work but also... Um, you know, just develop relationships and so on. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, and I, I think uh, that may be a that, that sort of demand, that desire for greater levels of community. I think is is going to be there. Yes, I think I think that 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 will be interesting to see how how that plays out in in the coming years. We've seen this shift. We've talked about at least a lot of this change being here to stay. But there are some big, big companies that are powering and driving these changes. Um, they were already massive and massively powerful before the pandemic. This has only strengthened their position, hasn't it? Yes, I do think this is, you know, one of the most troubling aspects of 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 what's happened in the pandemic is, as you said, that we were already seeing this extraordinary dominance of, of a small number of tech companies, particularly in the US, but also in China. And um, the and what has happened is that that dominance has just been uh, put on steroids. Um, and I, I, the, the way that, that Google, Facebook and, and Amazon have become absolutely entrenched uh, is is I think very troubling because um, with that immense power come becomes I'm afraid great abuse. Yes, even before the pandemic, we were seeing a rise in concern. I guess led by people like Shoshana Zuboff and and Tristan Harris talking about things like surveillance capitalism and the. The, this what they would call it the abuse of power uh, from these big tech companies hasn't the pandemic just made that situation a whole lot worse I think it has and um, I, I think there's surveillance capitalism this this completely new way of making money uh, just seems to be on, on an unstoppable road at the moment and uh, although you know there is now I think increase, increasing a understanding of how it works i think this is where people like zuboff have have made an enormous contribution uh, th through sort of detailed investigative journalism in 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 identifying and, and promoting and helping understanding of how it works i think it's one thing to understand how it works it's another thing 
to uh, to find a an effective way of of um, of working against the um, the growth of power of monopoly power. Yes, and when you realise that if you just take two of those those companies, Facebook and Google, uh, and all of the companies they own together, those two generate more revenue in advertising than the gross domestic product of a country like Romania, which is, I think, 44th or 5th in, in the world list. You know, just two companies. Uh, and that's come you know, with Google over 20 years and Facebook over a dozen. It's an amazing rise of power. It is, and and of course they are spending this wealth uh, in in very very effective ways to entrench their position, and not least in lobbying. You know, I think it's a little known story is quite how much money these big companies are investing in lobbying, particularly in Washington, but but across the world, and and you know having very lavish uh, public relations budgets and. Um, if if you imagine there's going to be some almighty run-in between uh, state governments and um, companies like like Google and Facebook, I, I don't know who I would put my money on. It's not at all obvious that state governments can no. win this particular battle. And I mean, the other place that they are spending their money very cannily but quietly is in academia. So they're... they're funding a lot of research they are influencing what's getting published in the journals and in some areas they seem to be controlling the agenda of what is and isn't acceptable areas to to work in um, which is quite a, a subtle way of of bolstering their position no i think i think they're very smart and and also they're buying up the best brains i mean yes. i i understand you know that that if they they're, they're constantly assessing the, um, the the outcomes of you know the, who are the most promising people coming up in computer science and so on and and they're then saying um, they're, they're offering football player salaries to promising young people nearly all male nearly all white and um, in order to entice them to come and work and and of course the the opportunity of working you know, with the best brains, with the best equipment, with with an unlimited budget, and you compare that with going into academe, um, you can see why how for many young people um, it's a no-brainer that they should go where the money is. Yes, I mean, that topic on its own probably deserves many episodes of, of podcast. Um, particularly, I think there's a need to, to think hard about what we do about it. You're, you, you've touched on states... Um, nation states struggling to, to work out how to regulate against this this sort of situation or even groups of states like the European Union um, so far no one's succeeded in controlling these the, these organizations they they carry within them the seeds of their own destruction as doesn't they I mean I think this is where a kind of Christian understanding about power and evil I I, I think that all these hegemonies uh, carry within them seeds of their own destruction and and the kind of hubris which we're seeing at the moment in Google and Facebook um, must be carrying within them seeds of their own destruction but at the moment we, we're in a we're in a phase of history where they are dominant and I think their dominance will continue at least for some time Have you seen through the pandemic um, 
either those sorts of organizations or, or governments using the opportunity to either sneak or force new levels of surveillance on populations well yes i think i think of course the if if you think that in general very invasive detailed surveillance is something that you feel is inappropriate the one time when there is a justification for really invasive surveillance is a pandemic a lethal pandemic and i think therefore the population as a whole has been prepared to accept the kind of surveillance that we get in smartphone apps and um, other other methods of tracking um, what the population are doing. I'm thinking to remember in the, Google published uh, various maps showing yes. the movement of people, don't they? And of course, that's just a glimpse into the level of invasive surveillance they have on every single person's movement. And, and do you think that once the restrictions begin to ease as the vaccinations roll out around the world and perhaps the, 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 the rise of the latest variants of COVID begin to come under control, do you think that the tide will retreat on that surveillance or do you think it, like some other things, it's here I to stay? I suspect it's here to say, and, and I, I think actually... I mean, this is this is a rather controversial point, and and I know that for many people, including many Christians, they feel that the fight should be circulated around privacy. You know that that it's a human right that we should be private, and that people should not know what we're doing. We should have privacy in our in our private life, and so on. I must say, I I personally feel that that particular ship has sailed. I th I think the idea that you can live in the modern world and that uh, you can have this space of complete privacy where where nobody knows what you're doing. I, I just don't think that is feasible any longer. I mean, even if you manage to make your home a completely sort of sealed off space where nobody knew what was going on, <laughs> and how would you do that? You'd have to have kind of Faraday cages, wouldn't you, to prevent any yes. possibility of, of, of monitoring and Wi-Fi and so on. The moment you come out of your front door, uh, you're going to be picked up the moment you drive in your car your number plate is going to be checked and monitored your insurance status your immigration status your uh, and and so on and so on i mean um and and that's this seems an irreversible phenomenon and you know if you think about it if you go back to the medieval period when people lived in villages everybody knew everybody's business the moment you came out of your front door in a village everybody else would know what you were doing and, and and maybe this this notion of privacy is is something which has has dissolved. So, John, we talked earlier about the growth of, of telemedicine. I mean, attending that have been the rise of AI applications. Uh, around healthcare and and robotics, actually, I and mean, has there been any impact of the pandemic on on those developments? Uh, yes, there has, and, and and certainly it it is continuing to accelerate interest in those areas. Um, interestingly, I suspect a bit like self driving cars, you know, where there was a great deal of hype and we were all going to have self driving cars within the next two or three years. I rather suspect the same thing is happening with AI powered diagnostic apps and so on um, I, I suspect that people are discovering that there are all kinds of complexities um, which mean that although these 
these apps can deal with the majority of of, of simple problems. Uh, they very rapidly get out of their depth uh, when dealing with, with some of the unusual complexities that happen in human life and human patients. So I, I suspect, you know, surprise, surprise, it's, I think there's, it's going to take a lot more time before these uh, smartphone-based apps, uh, certainly when it comes to diagnosis and so on and, and replacing your GP, I think that's a long way off. Interestingly, though, that I think a particular application is in mental health pandemic has been taking a terrible toll on mental health issues um, across all age groups uh, right from very young people all the way through to to the very elderly and I, th I think the idea that you can have a um, smartphone based uh, mental health apps which which act in a kind of as a kind of simulated therapy i think that idea has arrived it's a it's an idea whose time has come and i have very mixed feelings about it to be honest i mean there is a a, a growth of these kind of self-help apps some of them uh very dodgy some of them have been approved um you know by by more technical experts um but I, I, I think this is going to be an idea for the future that, that lots of us will have on our smartphone a, a kind of therapist who will um, talk to us every day and remind us of things and uh, uh, be always available. I hate to mention surveillance capitalism again, but if you look at something like Amazon's new device, the Halo, which has an express intention of monitoring mood and emotional state, of the wearer it's a smart a sort of smart watch um i can see those guys trying to get in on the act too and 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 try and build kind of self-help suites tied into your devices that that proactively intervene when they detect certain markers of perhaps your tone of voice or your facial expression or um biomarkers are, are, are appearing that they're picking up on a smart watch and do you think that's a realistic change in development yes i do and, and 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 i'm very conflicted about it because it turns out that with sophisticated technology you can deduce a huge amount about someone's mental state from the way they handle their smartphone um and from the kind of uh, vocabulary they use from the tone of their voice from the the, the likes they make from the um their choices and so on um, from the way the phone is moved in 3D space, all these things can be analysed to give you a a marker of someone's mood. And you know, suicide is, is a huge problem, and it is argued that if we were really using these techniques, we could save people's lives. We could we could monitor when someone's at risk of suicide and intervene. Um, and of course, that that's the justification, that's the so-called justification for this very invasive um, means of monitoring. And um, and and yes, I, I you know one of the great worries is with people who become extremely socially isolated and have suicidal thoughts, and nobody's aware. And the first thing you discover is someone has killed themselves. And so, yes, if we could identify people and 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 reach out to them, then that would be. Uh, have real value but at the same time and you know it, it doesn't take a genius to see what extraordinary power you're giving to whoever is controlling this technology
isn't there a danger that going down that road you start to move into this space where you think I guess there's sort of science modernist ideas that technology somehow can make everything right and everything good and that we just trust in technology and leave the human race in the hands of the of the techies yes and i think you know this is a feature of the modern world and the modern way of thinking is that whatever the problem is however complex it is whatever the human psychological philosophical religious spiritual roots of a problem are there's always a technolo technological solution there's a, there's a quick fix and you know, in some ways, one has to say, here's this terrible problem about a pandemic, which reflects all kinds of things that are going on in human society. What's the quick fix? Well, it's a vaccine. If only we can sort out, you know, find the genome, start start creating a vaccine, make sure everyone's got the vaccine solved. We have found our quick fix. We can go on and live our lives as before. And um, so a pandemic does f push people in this direction of a pro-technology quick fix kind of mindset but lurking behind that we we've got the whole issue of social media and, and what people call echo chambers where ever more polarized views are being presented which tend to take you in the opposite direction of, of believing every rumor every crazy idea um and actually becoming very irrational which arguably led to the storming of the capital back in in january so so how do we reconcile these two kind of different messages or or can we not well i think it's a it's absolutely fascinating how these two quite contradictory trends we can see both going on in the modern world certainly when the pandemic first hit here in the uk and we're talking you know just about a year ago uh, i was very struck by the way that um faced with an existential threat the natural reaction of people is to say where's the science where's the technology what's the truth and so you know there was a massive increase of people listening to or watching the news from bbc and from the sort of mainstream media because everybody desperately wanted to know what what the information was what what's the truth but it's interesting as that existential threat starts to retreat and people start to feel less immediately threatened then all these other negative trends, you know, the, the massive spread of conspiracy theories of and um, the the political, the domination of the political about masks and about vaccines and, and, and so on. Um, all these irrational trends seem to resurface. So so I think, yeah, I think the 21st century is the battle place between those two tendencies. On the one hand, a pro-science, pro-tech. Uh, sort of modernist approach and at the same time this this great surge of irrational conspiracy theories and and the role of social media in, in accelerating that and i think there's going to be some interesting questions for us as a faith community in working out how we contribute constructively to the society as a whole in, in navigating perhaps those choppy waters Yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think from the perspective of the Christian faith, you would say that both of those responses have deep, deep, are deeply problematic. In fact, we want to try to not to steer a line between the two, but sort of try to, you know, to have a, a third way, a way of reinforcing reality of, of saying, yes, we believe in reality, but this is a fallen world where terrible things happen. And the answer is not. Yes, technology has its role, but te technology can never fix the brokenness of creation. And ultimately, we need the gospel. We need the good news that comes through Jesus.
I think on that note, we probably draw this conversation to a close. In our next session, we want to look at these same sets of issues, but as applied to the church, to the, the, the community of believers, and look at how the pandemic has changed church, perhaps again for good, and what we might want to do about some of those changes, and, and whether we welcome them or fight them or go with them, I don't know. We, let, let's see where the conversation takes us next time. Yeah, thanks so much, Jonathan. John, thank you so much. That's all for our second episode. Thanks so much for joining us. In our next conversation, we will look at how expressions of church have been changing through the extended periods of lockdown and what the longer-term consequences might be. For those of you who are interested in finding out more about these issues, please do go to www.techhuman.org. You will find book reviews, long and short articles, as well as some links to interesting materials published on other sites. If you have any subjects you'd like us to look at, please let me know at jonathan at techhuman.org. We'd love to hear from you.